Hello folks. This episode is a bit longer than usual. It's about emotional and a bit personal, involving the murder of two high school friends of mine. I hope you'll listen. It could save your life. Most of us have heard the story. A 38-year-old mentally ill man named Shannon Cortez Gooden, who barricaded himself inside a home with seven children between the ages of 2 and 15, murdered two police officers, Paul Elmstrand and Matthew Rouge, and paramedic Adam Finseth. Of course, this is tragic, but what it really is tragic in my opinion is I believe it could have been prevented. If you're anything like me, the number one feeling that I'm experiencing is hopelessness. That's what this makes me feel like, hopeless. Because that's what this kind of irrationality does to me. Every time something as utterly senseless as this happens, I'm also fearful Fear being a very big one, but mainly just hopelessness. Because at least on the surface anyway, at least according to the report, there was absolutely no way anyone could have seen this coming. But after I took some time from my own painful personal memories, I began to reassert my realist perspective. And the mystery becomes far less a mystery than my emotions originally were having me believe. The fact is, Mr. Gooden had a long history of verbal and physical altercations with others, and although he was able to maintain employment for a number of years, his overall track record was one of emotional instability. And emotional instability especially when it involves violence, is a very good, reliable predictor of future violence, the level of which can be very unpredictable. I am not the powers that be, but if I were, not only would Mr. Gooden's right to possess firearms have been taken away from him, but he would have been in a mental facility as long as necessary, not freely walking the streets, an unseen ticking time bomb, needing only a trigger to explode. You might notice that whenever I have an episode about a subject such as this, something dealing with the often terrible outcomes of unmanaged mental illness, I have a tendency to become very prescriptive, And the reason for that is that, unfortunately, I have had very terrible experiences in my life due to me or others, I knew, not paying attention to the warning signs of serious mental illness until it was too late. So allow me to tell you about one of them, a story from my personal life. Names will be changed. When I was in high school, I was a pretty straight kid. I'm not going to say I was a Boy Scout by any means. 
Like most of the guys my age, I liked to party, and so did the girls, which was the whole point of the party. Having a good time, and you might even get lucky and get laid. This was before they had apps, of course, or even cell phones, but real, actual, physical contact. I had some truly wonderful and blissful experiences, but what I'm about to tell you was definitely not one of them. So there was this guy named Randy, a jock on the football team, but of course very popular with the girls. And of course, like many jocks, he was an asshole. Especially if you weren't a jock. But there was something about Randy that set him apart from the rest of the jocks. And he was really moody and unpredictable. And he was abnormally cruel whenever the mood hit him. And he had several run-ins with the law. Nothing too serious, but what I now recognize as an adult as antisocial personality traits. Of course, none of us knew those terms in those days. We just thought he was an aggressive jock asshole. So I guess we just shrugged it off that he was just being a jock asshole. So he kind of flew under the radar. Besides, he had parties and he had chicks. And for most guys, that was enough, myself included. But still, I made a mental note to always sleep with one eye open around that guy. So he was going to have a party. His parents would be out of town for a couple of days, and it was pretty much the usual thing. I came with my friend named James, who was driving. I didn't have my driver's license yet, and two other friends, Dave and Melody. I have never gotten to that night, never gotten. I have never forgotten that night. Not only did James' decision possibly save his life, but possibly mine as well, which I'll get to shortly. So the four of us get to the party. It ended up being around, I don't know, 12, 15 people there, I think. And the first couple hours went fine. Then Randy started getting really strange and aggressive. This is above and beyond a young guy getting shit-faced and belligerent. He was really strange. And he got strange with yours truly. So the idea was one person was supposed to remain sober in order to be a designated driver or get more beer if necessary. And that was James, who I came with. Unfortunately, that shit went out the window and James started to drink. But fortunately, he wasn't exactly a party animal, so he hadn't drank that much. So as time wore on, Randy just kept getting crazier and crazier and really aggressive. And I had a really bad feeling. <clears throat> so I said to James, look, man, Randy's getting really crazy. He's really being an asshole, man. And I just want to get out of here. Can we get out of here, man? I really just want to get the hell out of here. 
Fortunately, he said, yeah, I'm really sick of this bullshit too. Let's get out of here. I can't tell you how relieved I felt. Besides which, several other people had already left, and I'm pretty sure it was for the same reason. I told James that I was going to try to grab Dave and Melody. They were probably tired of his shit to let me try to grab them and we'll all leave together. So I went into the other room where Dave and Melody was. I told them I was leaving and practically begged them to leave with me. But Dave laughed it off and said he was going to stay. And of course, Melody was with him. Bear in mind, there was a loud party going on. There were still several people there. And just that very moment, Randy comes into the room and wanted to know why we're partying. I said, hey, it's been good, Randy, but I got to go. He was pissed, and he was a really big guy. He grabbed me and threw me up against the wall, clenching me tight by the front of my shirt near my neck. And he said, really? What do you got to go do, faggot? Go home and jack off to gay porn? I should throw your faggot ass out the window. Then Melody stepped in and berated Randy. She said, hey, leave him alone. Ernest is cool. Leave him the fuck alone. Then Randy instantly played it off, and he let me go and fixed my shirt and patted me on the cheek. And he said to her, hey, don't worry, Ernest is cool. I was just fucking with him a little bit. You're still a faggot for leaving the party, Ernest. Ha ha ha. Then Randy left the room. And uh, I kind of a little bit frantically said, uh, Hey, did you see that? Did you see what the fuck he just did? Are you guys, do you want to leave? They both just brushed it off as Randy being Randy. That ended up being the worst decision they ever made in their lives. Well, needless to say, I got the hell out of there. And that's what I told James. I said, let's get the hell out of here. He asked me about Dave and Melody. And I said something that to this day I feel terrible about. I said, fuck them. They want to stay with the asshole. So the next day, I got a call from James. I think it was about noon. I was still sleeping the party off. And we started bullshitting a bit about the party. And I had asked him if he'd heard from Dave or Melody. He said he hadn't. Which wasn't that big of a surprise. Because most of the time, people just crashed really hard from partying. And weren't getting up until you know noon or later, just like me and James. So I said, hey man, why don't you cruise over to Randy's and check on Dave and Melody? They're probably need a ride home. So he said, okay. And that was that. <clears throat> Remember, this was pre-cell phone or even internet days. So James calls me back and said he went over there and the door was locked, but the stereo was still on really low. But he went around the side window and could see Randy laying on the couch and looked like he was passed out. 
and he went to the bedroom window, and he could just make out Dave and Melody laying on the bed. But no matter how much he tapped on the window, they didn't respond. So, like an hour or so passed, and Melody's mom called James, because she knew that Melody and Dave were riding with James, and she demanded that James go get her and bring her home immediately. He said her mom sounded really pissed. So James went back and everything was just like as it was before. He said he really beat on the glass on the bedroom window, worried that he might break it, but still no response. So he told Melody's mom, and her mom called the police. The police eventually broke in the front door, and that woke up Randy. And when they went to the bedroom where Dave and Melody were, they were both very dead. Long story short, Randy had killed them both with a kitchen knife. He later said he became very pissed when Melody refused his sexual advances, and when Dave tried to defend her, he killed him first. He then proceeded to rape Melody, then decided to kill her as well. He stabbed each one of them like 30 or 40 times. He is still in prison today. This is one of the most traumatic experiences in my life, and I still deeply miss Dave and Melody. I know this story was a bit longer than I typically do, but the whole point of my personal and very traumatizing story is my feeling that so much of this kind of senseless violence and killing, maybe not all of it, but a hell of a lot of it, could really be avoided. If we paid closer attention to people with emotional dysregulation and had properly funded mental health systems in place to get and keep, if necessary, ticking time bombs like Shannon Gooden off the streets and away from society. And tragedies such as the murders of Paul Elmstrand, Matthew Rouge, and Adam Finseth would never have happened. And I truly believe that. Until next Monday or Friday, this is Ernest, wishing you peace and good things.